0: Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, and I'm here with Coach Connor. There have been key researchers who have been critical to our understanding of endurance sports science. And while we'll never be able to cover everyone who's had a lasting impact, Trevor and I have decided that we want to focus on some key researchers with a variation on our Nerd Lab style episodes. These seminal study episodes will focus on one researcher, highlighting their contributions that made a lasting impact in sports science knowledge. Today, we're discussing Dr. Paul Larson, whose research has spanned two decades and who's literally written the book on high-intensity interval training. Today, we're covering three of his papers. The first, titled The Scientific Basis for High-Intensity Interval Training, was published in 2002, and after 20 years, its detailed best approaches for high-intensity training are still relevant today. A second, 2010 review titled Training for Intense Exercise Performance, High-Intensity or High-Volume, details how high and low-intensity training can both lead to improvements in aerobic performance. Finally, we'll talk about a 2013 study titled, Current Hydration Guidelines Are Erroneous, Dehydration Does Not Impair Exercise Performance in the Heat, a study that highlights the complexity of physiological research and how nuance can have a meaningful impact to our knowledge and best practices. So, get ready to dive into the science of Dr. Larson, and let's make you fast. Hey, listeners, it's Rob Pickles, co host of Fast Talk. We have some exciting news to share. Fast Talk is now on Patreon. Patreon is a social platform that helps us keep creating the Fast Talk podcast you know and love. As a Fast Talk supporter, you can help us stay independent. Just log on to patreon.com and search for Fast Talk Podcast. Personally, I've really loved creating Fast Talk. Being able to share a little bit of myself with you every week has been a lot of fun, and I'm happy that I'm able to give back to a community that means so much to me. I'm inspired every day by your emails, comments, and feedback, and I'm constantly looking for ways to improve the podcast experience for our listeners. Honestly, we couldn't do any of this without all of you. So thank you for your support, and thanks for listening.
1: Well, hello. Welcome to Fast Talk. It's actually
0: getting a little unusual, Rob. It's just you and me in the studio today. I think it's unusual because it's a Wednesday and it's not snowing outside right now, Trevor.
1: Yeah, but that's been kind of the routine here, hasn't it been? Snowstorm every Wednesday. It has been. It's incredible.
0: Hey, you know, do you ever feel, Trevor, when we're putting together more of these Nerd Lab episodes that you feel like you're cramming for a midterm? I feel like that for every single episode. Uh, well, I don't, I don't feel like that for every single episode, but good Lord, getting ready for this one, I was I was knee deep in research and each paper that I read, we're talking about three papers today. I kept looking at other papers to back up my thoughts and it was like a hundred papers deep. I think I did my own meta-analysis to get ready for this episode. Yeah. I hope I get an A. I'll let you know at the end, I might be giving you a B plus. <laughs> So <laughs> we'll see, B plus I'm happy with actually, tell you the truth, I'm a solid B student. I'm okay with that. There we go.
1: My nephew used to intern, help us out with the show a little bit. And he asked me about the preparations for the show and he's like, so what, what's your secret to that? And I'm just looking at one. Remember when you were in college, when you had to research for an exam or research for a paper and then write the paper, he's like, yeah, that was really hard. I'm like, that's every
0: episode. That's, that's our life. Yep. Don't podcast people, leave it to the pros. Leave it to the people who don't mind spending a Friday night (laughs) reading research. (laughs) There you go.
1: That's what it comes down to. There you go. What's this research we're covering today, Trevor? So this is a a new type of episode. We do these nerd labs where we talk about some recent research. But Rob, you had this great idea of we should be talking about some of the big names in exercise science research. And there's one that we keep referencing on show after show after show that we felt let's talk about some of the seminal research that this person's done. And this is Dr. Paul Larson. And give a little bit of background, Dr. Larson. He doesn't put out a ton of information about his history out on the, God, I was about to use the term, World Wide Web, right back in the 90s.
0: interwebs? Interwebs. Interwebs. I think that's what the cool kids say today. (laughs) So we were looking up
1: Dr. Larson because some of my favorite reviews, some of my favorite research is from him and discovered some interesting things about him. I believe he is Canadian. So he did his schooling in British Columbia. That's where I did some of my work. He actually was a researcher and still a researcher at the Auckland University of Technology. So at some point he went over to, I know he's worked with Australia and New Zealand and done a lot of his research over there. But he's now actually moving into being a bit of a a businessman. He has a company called Athletica that's doing AI training software. He's also co-founder and CEO of what's called Hit Science. And he, on top of all his research, wrote a fantastic book that if you are looking for the full science, the full explanation of high-intensity interval work, that is the book. So we're actually going to talk about one of his reviews today that cover that, but this is a book that kind of is that review on steroids.
0: Yeah. Dr. Larson is without question the real deal. I'm super excited that we're talking about him today. Maybe not him. We're talking about the work that he has done. And what is a little bit different about this episode is that we're actually we're, we're kicking it old school, right? Because we're talking about some research from the early 2000s. You know, we might have some updates, you know, that have occurred in the last 20 years, but this is some of the, the more seminal things, at least I think in Trevor and I's life in terms of understanding. But before we dive into that research, I want to share one quick anecdote that, that's pretty funny. You know, a few years ago, Training Peaks put on the Endurance Sports Coaching Symposium or something like that, right? It was at CU Sports Medicine where I was a physiologist at the time. And as part of that symposium, everyone could come down to my lab and get an education in lactate testing and exercise prescription and everything else. And so I'm in this room with a dozen people. And, you know, of course, you get questions and and life is grand and answering questions is fun. But I started getting question after question from this one individual, and they got deeper and more complex every time it was asked. And in my head, I'm going, who is this guy? He knows exactly what he is talking about. And yep. I was sweating at times. I hope that I answered his questions you know, sufficiently. And after he walked up, shook my hand and said, hey, I'm Paul Larson, nice to meet you. And I was like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> So that's my, that's my one run in with uh, Dr. Larson, but hopefully we can get him on the show, Trevor, and and we'll be talking with him, you know, maybe about some new research.
1: That'd be absolutely fascinating. And it was really interesting looking at what his most recent research is, because a lot of what I've read and and keep going back to is some of his his older stuff, Mm -hmm. but he's been actually, so this is what's fascinating to me. He is just known as the high intensity interval guy. Yep. He wrote the book on it, literally. Mm Mm-hmm. And all of his research has been on low carbohydrate, high fat diets. Yeah. And he seems to be a bit of a proponent, particularly from a health perspective. It's interesting to rectify those two things together. Right. Because, and you've hopefully already heard our our episode on carbohydrates with Dr. Eukendrup. And we talked about in that episode, it's pretty definitive science that to be able to do that really high intensity work, you need glucose. You need those carbohydrates. So... Rob, we have two reviews and a study from Dr. Larson. What's our first one?
0: Well, the first one that we're going to do is all the way back to 2002, and it's titled The Scientific Basis for High-Intensity Interval Training. Some people might call this a review. I would call it a knowledge drop, to tell you the truth. If I remember right, 170 references. But what was really interesting and why this is an important article is that He really tried to fill in the blanks between what is just typically a meta-analysis, explaining the research that's out there, but also trying to close some of those loops or propose things for the future. It read in such an informative manner that I think everyone needs to read this paper at some point in their life. What was really interesting for me is, I mean, I read this back when it came out.
1: And this was just a, this review was a big deal because finally somebody had kind of collected all this information on interval work, what does work, what doesn't work, giving recommendations on how to do interval work. And as I'm going through that, I'm like, yeah, whether it was from this review or people were reading the the same research, this is really the last, when you think of the last 20 years and what we focused on in interval work, it's all kind of in here. Mm-hmm. So at the time it was just huge, you know, here it is. Here's the, here's the paper talking about high intensity interval work. What I found really interesting reading it and you know, this is 21 year old paper. You do start to see some of the age in it. It's not to take anything away from it. It was a fantastic review at the time, but you do certainly see a little bit of that age. And one of my favorite parts is he talks in the beginning about how a lot more of the research has been done and running because you mm-hmm. can control pace and you don't really have anything that's that controllable in cycling. And you're sitting there going, yeah, power.
0: Yeah. I got a power meter on every part of my bike right now. Right. But 2002, yep. that was a lot less common. I was a sophomore in college.
1: Yeah. I'm trying to think of where I was in 2002.
0: <laughs> I got to actually even think about that for a minute. I know. I know. It's incredible to think back. And and it doesn't feel like this research, you know, and I know that you're mentioning some of it is dated. It feels like it was a long time ago that I was a sophomore in college, but this still feels very relevant and very important to yeah. me today. Hey, Trevor, can I ruffle your feathers for a second? Mm-hmm. How do you feel about this? Increase training volume does not cause further improvement in highly trained athletes. So Rob
1: actually picked the, the three studies from Dr. Larson that we were going to talk about. And what I really like is when we get into the next one, which is one of my all-time favorite reviews, I've probably mentioned it 30 times on the show, is a, another review from Dr. Larson in 2010. And we're going to do a little bit of contrasting between these two because he makes statements in this 2002 paper that you see kind of an evolution of his thinking by the 2010 review and some changes. So in this one, he, he says pretty definitively, as you said, that when you're talking about elite athletes, doing low-intensity work doesn't provide any more gains.
0: Ah, but I didn't read it that way. I read it as elite athletes doing more low-intensity work yeah, doesn't improve their gains. And one of the studies that he references, and I actually I saw this one kicking around Twitter the other day, which is just fortuitous. It was a study by Costal that looked at swimmers. And essentially for one group of swimmers, they doubled their training program by having them do two a days. So their volume literally increased twofold and they saw little to no improvement in any physiological markers. And if anything, the athletes just got really freaking tired and they yeah. struggled to do the training in general. And I wonder at what point does that kick in, right? Because in this study or in this review, Dr. Larson clearly says, hey, if you're an untrained or recreational trained person, increasing your low intensity volume, totally worthwhile. But if you're a highly trained athlete, and it was defined as someone with a VO2 max greater than 60 60. milliliters per kilogram, that increased low intensity time probably isn't doing anything for you. And yeah, let's put that into a practical perspective. If you're doing two hours a week of training and you go to 10 hours a week, you're going to get better. If you go to 10 hours a week, but you increase to 15 hours a week, are you going to get better? Probably. But if you're at 15 hours a week and you go to 20 hours a week, are you going to see major improvements? I don't know. See, that's the difference between
1: the the two reviews. I, I agree with you. And he, I think he says it a little more eloquently in the 2010 review, which is if all you do is low intensity work, you're going to miss out on potential gains. Mm-hmm. But he also states in that review that if all you do is high intensity, you're going to miss out in gains. Mm-hmm. And really it's the balance between the two. But in that 2010 review, he brings up the, he first cites some of the similar research that he cites in this 2002 saying, we don't really see any gains from adding volume to high level athletes, but for some reason, all the high level athletes do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And by the way, this 2002 review, there were multiple authors. So it was Dr. Larson and Dr. Uh,
0: David Jenkins. 2010 was just Dr. Larson. And the title, because we're talking about it now, the title for that 2010 review is Training for Intense Exercise Performance, High Intensity or High Volume Training. Right. And what he gets into is, A,
1: the limitations of, of the research. That is much harder to study, the high volume, low intensity, because it takes often months to years to see the gains from that. And it's also when you're dealing with the lab, it's very easy to get somebody to come in and do 30 minutes of intervals. It's much harder to get somebody to come in and do a bunch of six hour rides in the lab. So it's just hard to control. So basically he admits there might be gains that we just can't see because the research just is having a harder time addressing this.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's a similar sentiment that's shared by other researchers. Dr. Larson heavily references Dr. Siler throughout these papers. And we're obviously... Well, at least in the
1: 2010. You 2002, 2002, 2002
0: it wasn't quite, you know, Siler time yet
1: at that point. Dr. Siler first introduced the polarized training model in yep. 2006. And yes, I agree that 2010, the underlying message of it is polarized training seems to fit with the science.
0: Yeah, and Dr. Seiler recognizes in his Is there an optimized training intensity yep. distribution? If I remember right, that there's long term athlete development here that takes a decade, right, before we're seeing major improvements or people reaching high levels of fitness. And that's where it becomes interesting to compare the high intensity versus the low intensity adaptations. Universally, I think everyone agrees that there are relatively rapid improvements from high-intensity training, without question. But based on Dr. Seiler's work, we know that a high percent of time spent at low-intensity training is essential. It's critical to high-level endurance performance. Right. And I think
1: we should dive a little more into the 2002 review, but when we get to the 2010 review... Dr. Larson actually gives some of the physiological explanation behind it. Sure. In the 2002 review, you see him really talking about central adaptations versus peripheral adaptations, mm-hmm. and that was pretty dominant in the science. And the idea, when you're particularly going back to maybe 80s, 90s, there was this notion that you have central adaptations, which is basically your your heart's ability to deliver blood. So that's when we're talking about stroke volume, cardiac output. Yep. And then peripheral adaptations are the muscle's ability to take in that oxygen and, and use it for energy. So it's what's going on at the, at the muscle level. And there, there used to be a bit more of a belief that that long, slow volume that you do, that trains your central adaptations. That's training your stroke volume. And it's the um, high intensity that trains the, the peripheral side. So that was the explanation behind why you need both. But as we'll see when we get into that 2010 review, we've learned more about how the the physiology works. That kind of got thrown out because he even has in the 2010 review this great diagram with PGC1 alpha at the center, got like my favorite it. term, and showing that actually both high intensity and low intensity hit that same pathway. So it's not one train's central, one train's peripheral. It seems to be... They both hit the same pathway and then that produces adaptations
0: at, at both levels. So yeah. a lot of this old central versus peripheral got thrown out. You know, in this 2002, obviously, you know, the title Scientific Basics for High Intensity Interval Training. It's focused on high intensity intervals without question. The thing that I found really interesting, and I think that this is applicable, is there's the continued mention that high-intensity interval training trains both oxidative and glycolytic pathways, and that because of that, it's a highly efficient form Mm -hmm. of training. And I do want to emphasize this because there are multiple studies that indicate doing high-intensity intervals improves things like fat oxidation, lowering your RQ during exercise, preserving the substrate, your glycogen in your muscles, doing high intensity is not all about cramming as much sugar as possible and running through glycolytic processes as fast as possible. It's not just about your finishing sprint. That high intensity, even VO2 max efforts, even sprint interval training has the ability to improve the power at lactate threshold, these other more durable measures of performance. Yep. So the the final
1: part of this 2002 review he talks about what's the best prescriptions for mm-hmm. for interval type work and talks about the different types and the sort of benefits they've seen from them and you really saw the makings of what's become some of the standard ways of doing high intensity work coming out of this review with sort of his thought experiments which made a lot of sense mm-hmm. where he talked about the importance of the rest so you know back Before this review, if you go back to the training in the the 80s and 90s, you saw a lot more of that just steady threshold work. It hadn't been too long since Tabata had introduced the Tabata type intervals, which is that really high intensity for the traditional Tabata is a really high intensity for 20 seconds, then a 10 second rest, then 20 seconds, then 10 seconds. He also talked a lot in this review about 30 30s, which is 30 minute, 30 seconds, <laughs> 30 minutes, <laughs> 30 minutes would be really tough. Uh, 30 seconds at most of the studies he was looking at were running. So he's talking about at your VO2 max pace, yep. then 30 seconds easy, then 30 seconds at your VO2 max pace. But what I found really interesting is he said that that rest interval is really important yep. because if you have that long rest, you recharge that anaerobic system.
0: Yeah. Your ATP stores can be
1: rebuilt and you're really just hitting your anaerobic energy system. But he flipped it around and actually said, one of the issues with something like the Tabatas is very quickly, you deplete the anaerobic energy stores and you're actually most, even though you're trying to do this high intensity work, you're mostly aerobic. And so he was talking about that, that great balance where you hit both the high intensity, but the recoveries are short enough that you have to start bringing in some aerobic energy. And he was talking about some of the, the best high intensity intervals are going to both hit that anaerobic and the aerobic systems. And that's, I think why he quite frequently went back to the 30 thirties mm-hmm. and I can't help but point out, but your mentor who we've had on the show many times, Neil Henderson, he loves the
0: 30 thirties. Yeah. Revolver was a workout written by him that people are probably quite familiar with if they've ever done uh, suffer fast or I guess it's Wahoo system at this point. Yeah. I, I've been doing that workout for years and years and years before it was ever a publicly shared uh, workout and it hits you hard. Certainly. Yeah. So it was really interesting to hear that
1: expressed in this review. And like you said, it was kind of a knowledge jump. It wasn't, you know, just reviewing studies and saying, here's what they showed. It was him. And it was also very interesting to see, 2002. How little research on interval work had actually been done. Right. I think the the person who had really been hitting it hard was, was Dr. Bile. If I'm pronouncing
0: that correctly, Veronique bla Yeah. Yep.
1: You know, you had to kind of make a lot of logical leaps here because a ton of the research hadn't been done yet. But you really saw him kind of thinking through, here's what would make the most effective intervals. And I still know a lot of top-level coaches that are really doing what you see in, at the the end of this study.
0: Yeah. One of the bigger takeaways for me, Trevor, from this research was that Dr. Larson really made the point that, at least at this point in time, there was not a lot of research on high-level athletes. Yes, The ones that have VO2 max greater than 60 as defined in here in that the research or the recommendations created for everyone else for the recreational for the non-athlete they don't necessarily apply to the highly trained athlete because they've already achieved a lot of the adaptations and that there's some factors are not ready to change I'll say in very layman's terms some factors are not ready to change within their body And by going off the recommendations typically given to people, this high intensity or this high performance athlete, I should say, the high performance athlete isn't able to see the gains like we would expect for a less fit athlete. Agreed. And to your point about
1: the lack of research, at one point he goes specifically to look at cycling studies and went, there was only One. one. Yeah, exactly. And it's a great study where they took five very divergent types of interval workouts. Yep. From, super, I think it was like super long thresholds, they had four minute intervals, more of that VO2 max intervals, they had the 30-30s, I think they had a sprint and then one other. And you're kind of left scratching your head from this study because they showed the, the two that were the most effective and had produced very similar gains were the 30-30s and the four minutes. Hmm. And they look at that and go, you know, those, those are pretty divergent yeah, like, intervals, how are they doing the same thing? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're, you're getting to what I found really interesting about this review, which is he spends a lot of time trying to say, we see that high intensity interval work produces gains in elite athletes, but how, Yeah, what does it change? And he goes through physiological system after physiological system and keeps
0: going, don't really see anything. Yeah, exactly. Or a couple where he's like, mm-hmm. maybe it's this, but we don't know yeah. there needs to be more research. I thought it was interesting how he focused on increased buffering capacity. And I was where, about to bring that up. That's really the one where he's like there's something here. Right? And and for me it's like, oh, increased buffering capacity. Yeah, I took a lot of sodium bicarbonate when I was a 400-meter hurdler. I can I can see how increased buffering improved my 50-second effort time. But how he related the increased buffering capacity of the hydrogen ions to an increased ability or an increased function of PFK, phosphofructokinase, right, which is one of the first steps in the Krebs cycle, that that ultimately can support aerobic energy production. And that was a link. I don't like admitting that I didn't know something. That's a link I had never made before. It was a really
1: interesting link, but yeah. No, I I thought it was quite perceptive to to go to the buffering. And this is where I would point at, um, you know, look at Dr. Sam Milan. Mm -hmm. Look at the amount of research he's done in buffering. He loves to talk about MCT1 and MCT4, which are your transporters for lactate and really focus on that. You want to be able to go hard for a long period of time. You need that ability to buffer. Yep. So Rob, before we move to the second review, I'm going to throw this to you. So this is 22 years, 21 years old. Okay. A lot of research has come out since then. He was obviously left at the end of this review, kind of scratching his head on on what changes. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on 20 years of research since, what it is or
0: how we see the adaptations in elite athletes? Well, well, it's funny because this is 21 years old and I was about 22 years old at the time. I know that I've had a lot of changes in the subsequent years and you had pointed this out. So you're stealing my thunder a little bit the work of Dr. Seiler that has come out has really augmented, I'll say, this research to date. Mostly because at this time in 2002, it was easy to say, we did long, continuous training and nothing happened. And we did high-intensity training and people got better. So therefore, we must put our eggs in the high-intensity basket. And the work of Dr. Seiler really showed that That's not how people train in that we have to lend credence to the fact that long, low intensity as a major component, not a component the major component of training is ultimately essential to high performance. That's the major one for me, Trevor. What are your thoughts in the past 20 some odd years? So I'm actually going to
1: point to to two. One is, at the same time that this review came out, it's really important to point out another top researcher, Dr. Lucia, mm-hmm. was doing some of his best studies. So actually, two of the ones that that
0: two on very France big writers? reviews, yeah,
1: physiology of professional road cycling and kinetics of VO2 in professional cyclists. And what I actually found interesting, I went back to find those to compare them to to Dr. Larson's review. And notice that Dr. Larson's review is 2002. Both of these were 2001, I believe. Mm. So this is all right about the same time. And what Dr. Lucia was trying to get at is how do top athletes improve? And he kind of said there's three big physiological things that we look at. One is your VO2 max. Mm -hmm. One is your threshold. One is your economy efficiency. For right now, we'll just combine those even though they're not the same thing. And what he stated was you don't really see much improvement in economy. VO2 max tends to peak pretty early on in your career. So you don't see a lot of improvements in that In pros. What he said was the difference is you see that threshold. So if we're talking power and cyclists, for example, that threshold power gets very close to their VO2 max power. So they're able to just sustain at very close to their VO2 max. So keep that thought. The other thing that I want to bring up is a lot of research on fatigue that's happened in the last 20, 30 years where they were trying to figure out what causes fatigue in athletes, what causes them to finally slow down. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, it's not one thing. No it's, no. it's many, many different things that can lead to fatigue. And ultimately what I got out of that is the importance of homeostasis. That so Basically, when you are going hard, your body is trying to stay in balance. That's homeostasis. And when your body stops being able to maintain homeostasis, then it starts to shut down. Then it can't maintain the, the pace. And multiple different ways homeostasis can shut down. So, my theory is it's not one thing that improves. What you see when you're doing this high intensity work and the long, slow in elite athletes is they're improving their ability to maintain homeostasis. And it's hard to measure because it's 30 different things, all of which improve just a little bit. But what it adds up to is we'll use power again because power is really easy. Take an amateur cyclist and a pro cyclist. They can both get on the bike and put out 300 watts. The difference is the pro, you're seeing no buildup of lactate. You're seeing no acid buildup. You're seeing them produce most of that energy aerobically. So they're tapping into their fat stores, which are basically unlimited. So they can sustain that 300 watts. That amateur, they're producing a lot of that energy anaerobically. And those stores are very, very limited. They are producing a lot of acid. They're producing a lot of lactate, which they can't buffer very well. So you're seeing that build up. And so they can only do that 300 watts for a short period of time before homeostasis shuts down. And it's not one thing. It's a whole lot of
0: things. Trevor, I think that you're on a really interesting point. We oftentimes look at these determinants of performance in kind of a reductionist state, because that makes it easy to understand. Does the training improve my mitochondrial density? No. Wasn't worthwhile. We can measure that. Well, but if it improved something else, then maybe it improves performance and vice versa. Sometimes we see training or any intervention. uh, It could be a supplement. It could be the time of day. We see that this intervention improves things in the laboratory, no effect whatsoever when it comes to performance. So we always have to remember how complex the situation is, not throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to say, but try to understand the bigger picture here. Right. And I think... When you're talking about that,
1: talking about maintaining homeostasis, you have to bring in a big mental component. Again, when you talk about fatigue, there's that central governor theory of fatigue, which is all these different signals are being sent to your brain. And it's actually your brain that at some point says, this is too much. I'm going to slow you down. I think we can learn to control that. So an amateur, they're going to get those signals and very quickly, the brain is going to go, enough, stop. I think a elite athlete has a, an ability to go, yeah, this is really hurting. There's a lot of things that are, are starting to, to break down a little bit. I can keep going. I can push through that. One of the classic examples was they always said, once your core temperature hits 40 degrees Celsius, you're done. That's, that's just a definite, you're fatigued. But then they did studies on elite, like Olympic level cyclists. And we're showing that in races, races that they really cared about, they were hitting 43, they were hitting 44, and they were
0: just able to push through it. Yeah. You know, I think that this is a super interesting topic. In Instead of getting too off track from what we're talking about today, mm-hmm. we have a couple more studies. I'm gonna encourage people to go back and listen to episode 261 that we did on pain tolerance with Scott Frey, because we talk a lot about, about this that. in that right. episode. Exactly. Hey, listeners, this is expert coach and physiologist Ryan Kohler from Rocky Mountain Devo, and we just launched the Fast Talk Labs six-week strength training series. As many of you know, building and maintaining muscle strength is a crucial component of your training program. Whether you're a cyclist, runner, triathlete, adventurer, or recreational athlete, we'll be releasing an easy-to-follow workout every week that'll help you get stronger and more durable for your chosen sport. Don't let your strength slide this upcoming season. Check out more at FastTalkLabs.com. So
1: let's move to the 2010 review. This is training for intense exercise performance, high intensity or high volume training. And this is one of my all-time favorite reviews. Should
0: I just sit back and, and let you go <laughs> here? I'm going to drink a little water.
1: Are we going to do the dummy thing where you're, you're actually talking? Is my mouth moving? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, one thing that I love to see in here was he actually in this review brings up the whole purpose of training is to better handle what he called homeostatic deviation. Mm-hmm. Exactly what I was talking about. And it yep. was kind of nice to see because Dr. Larson is a much smarter person than me, but at least twice as smart. At least twice as smart. But when I was reading the 2002 review, I came up with that idea that I just expressed to you. <laughs> then I went back and reviewed the 2010 and went, oh, he had the same idea.
0: <laughs> or more, I had the same idea as him. Let's there put it go. the right there way. You go. Let's call a spade a spade on this one. It's documented when he had the idea. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: So what I love about this review is a couple things. So I'll, I'll kind of give the the quick summary. And then Rob, let's, let's go wherever you'd like to go. Do it. So we already talked about the fact that first he addresses, Hey, there isn't a ton of research that high volume does much for you, Mm -hmm. but then admits here's the limitations of the research. And we have this fact that even though there isn't any evidence you see again and again and again, and remember this is 2010, Dr. Seiler proposed the whole polarized theory, which he referenced multiple times in this review in 2006, 2007. He said, but for some reason, elite athletes are spending 75% or higher of their time doing long, slow. So what's the reason? And just said, essentially, what's probably going on here is there are gains that we just can't see in the research Mm because it's really hard to do that study. They just take too long and it's hard to do in a controlled setting. So that was one thing that I I love to see him talk about. But then he goes into what are the possible physiological mechanisms, and he explains the whole PGC-1-alpha pathway, which Mm -hmm. is fantastic, has a a great diagram of it showing both high-intensity and high-volume hitting PGC-1-alpha, how they do it, and then the gains that you see, which is increase in type 1 fibers, increase in mitochondrial biogenesis, increase in fat oxidation capacity, and an, an increase in your GLUT4 transporters for sugars and glycogen. And what he gets into, and you've heard me say this multiple times on the show, is there are four mechanisms that seem to activate pgc one alpha that seem to elevate it. One is mechanical stretch or muscle tension. The second one is an increase in reactive oxygen
0: species that occurs when oxygen is processed through respiratory pathways. And we're not going to talk much about it, but I will say this is what's behind the theory of antioxidants taking a large amount of vitamin C might diminish adaptation. Exactly. Perfect. Okay. Exactly. Three, an increase in muscle calcium
1: concentrations as required by excitation contraction coupling. By the way, I'm not interpreting these. I'm reading the, the study right now. And then four is the altered energy status, i.e. lower ATP and muscles. Now here's what's really important. And the thing that I, got out of this review and why I go back to it again and again and again and again that increase in calcium concentrations in the muscles so calcium is used to help muscles contract and the idea is the sarcoplastic reticulum which I just mispronounced and Rob is laughing close close enough man it's cool it's close enough releases calcium that causes the muscle to contract and then all that calcium sucked back up which gets the muscle to to relax you do that enough times, even at low intensity, and it gets harder and harder and harder to suck all that calcium back up and you get stuff, some build-up. breaks down, yeah. So things break down. That's what long-slow does, and that activates PGC-1-alpha. The high-intensity work causes that buildup of ADP, mm-hmm. so the drop in ATP, which also activates PGC-1-alpha.
0: And as a quick refresher, whenever we talk about burning fat, burning carbohydrate during exercise... The whole reason we're doing that is to create more ATP, to add phosphate back onto the ADP, the di, that's what the D is, di means two, and bring it back to an an adenosine tri-3-phosphate. So ADP and ATP are ultimately what we're talking about when we talk about energy for the muscle cell. So here I'm going to read right out of
1: the study. So first he says... Higher volumes of exercise training are likely to signal for these adaptations through the calcium comodulin kinase, while higher intensity of endurance training, which lowers ATP concentrations and raises AMP levels, appear more likely to signal for mitochondrial biogenesis through the
0: AMP-activated protein kinase pathway, AMPK. So that's what we were just saying. For what it's worth, AMP is, M is mono. So now we only have one phosphate. So yep. ATP, ADP, AMP is 3, two, 1 phosphates. Yep.
1: Then he goes on to say, with these two secondary phenotypic adaptation signals identified, it becomes apparent how different types of endurance training modes might elicit similar adaptive responses. So basically he's saying they're hitting PGC1-alpha, They're both are, but they're hitting it differently through different means. And then how he finishes the review is to say, A, the pathway that high intensity seems to use has a rapid response, but seems to plateau where the, the pathway that's used by the long slow seems to be much slower in its adaptations, but doesn't seem to plateau as much. It seems to produce continuing gains over time. Ultimately, what he says is it's the additive effect that these two work in conjunction to produce a much bigger gain. So if all you ever do is long, slow, you're going to miss out on gains. If all you ever do is high intensity, you're going to miss out on gains. It's the right mix of the two, which is really the ultimate explanation of the polarized approach to training.
0: Yeah, I really enjoy this paper, this knowledge drop because of the practicality that is inside of it. Dr. Larson clearly says training above LT1, VT1, however you want to define it, training above base, it induces a lot of stress through the autonomic nervous system. And athletes can only handle so much of that systemic stress. We know that training at high levels or high intensities causes great gains and adaptations. But we should also know that it's pretty limited the amount of work that we can handle there and that we might not see as rapid of a change at low intensity, but man, we can do a lot of low intensity work before it overwhelms the body. And that balance between the two, that's the balance that we need to be the best athletes we can.
1: And he also brings up in this review, as you were saying, the overwhelming your body. The importance of that autonomic stress, that high intensity work produces a lot of stress on us, that if you do too much of that can push you over into an overtrained state where the long slow does not. And that's part of the reason that you see these elite athletes do a lot of long slow because they can only handle so much high intensity.
0: Yeah, to put this into perspective, I think that this came out of a Siler paper. I don't think it was in this one, Trevor. Let me know. There was a study on racehorses that was using alternating high intensity and low mm-hmm. intensity days and they trained the racehorses up they got pretty good with this alternating high and low intensity and then they said hey we're going to we're going to keep the low intensity as it is we're going to make the high intensity a bit more intense the horses got better they didn't get overtrained perfect When they changed up the structure, though, and they said, we're going to take out the low intensity and we're going to move that to really what was a moderate intensity plus the high intensity, those horses were overtrained before you could drop a hat. They couldn't complete the training anymore. All of their performance came down. So showing that polarized difference, keeping the low low and the high high, even in horses is worthwhile. Yep. No,
1: agreed. Now, one thing that's worth pointing out here, and I do apologize because I've read this review for the life of me, I couldn't find it. I spent 30, 40 minutes looking for it last night. I will keep looking for it. So yeah, I can't remember the name of that review. I apologize. As I said, I spent a long time looking for it last night. We'll put it in the show notes if I can find it. But they did add some complexity to this conversation. We always talk on the show about PGC1-alpha, and I try to keep it simple, not throw too many terms at you, so we, we talk a lot about that pathway. But more and more, they're showing that, obviously, whenever you're talking about the body, it's always more complicated. Mm-hmm. And PGC1-alpha seems to work in conjunction with a, another signaling protein called P53. And it does complicate the conversation a little more. And I do, at some point, want us to do an episode talking about how these two proteins produce a lot of our our aerobic adaptations and a lot of the complexity of this conversation.
0: Yeah, I think that would be interesting. I've certainly read a bit about P53, but I'm not an expert yet. But when I cram for that episode, I hopefully will be. Well, let's get on the calendar. I think this would be a fun one. (laughs) Awesome.
1: All right, Rob, should we move to our final study from Dr. Larson? I think
0: we should. In this study, it's, it's different than the first two. The 2002 and the 2010 study that we talked about are, are both on this high intensity, low intensity training mm-hmm. spectrum. They're also reviews. They are also reviews. Correct. This is a study in which Dr. Larson was the lost author. And so presumably uh, some students, you know, carried out this work. Dr. Larson was overseeing it. But this is a 2013 study that's, I don't know if it's inflammatory, but the title is Current Hydration Guidelines Are Erroneous. Dehydration Does Not Impair Exercise Performance in the Heat. Go figure. I love this study. I've actually <laughs> never read this before. Really? You are you're glad that I, You're glad that I picked it out. Great.
1: So I'm just going to say this as somebody who did race at a high level and had to suffer through five-hour races in mm-hmm. extreme heat. hmm I'm going to go back to this is 2008 when they were getting ready for the Olympics in China and they were expecting a lot of heat there. Mm-hmm. And I remember the Canadian national team was putting all the riders in these kind of mobile homes to do their training because they could heat it up. And, and we're just obsessing about their being able to handle the heat and getting into this hole. So the, the belief is once you lose 2% of your body weight in dehydration, your performance drops. Mm -hmm. So they were obsessing the 2% loss. And I remember one of the Canadian Olympians, I'll I'll let him remain anonymous, griping to me about all this time in these heated buildings and just saying, we're athletes, we're tough. We'll figure it out. (laughs) Just let us race the damn race. And that's what I've always felt. I'm like, I am certain I have done many races where I've lost way more than 2% of my body weight. Think about how much faster you go but climb. Yeah, right. And look, certainly there's a point where you you see a drop in performance, but I find it hard to believe at 2% you're you're falling off.
0: Yeah. You know, I will say that there is research supporting the fact that heat training or heat adaptation increases things like plasma volume and that that can improve stroke volume and you can get better performance. I think that that is a topic for a different show. But I do like research like this that's like, ha you thought you knew, but you probably don't know. And what's unique about this, and they open the paper by saying previous hydration research, essentially how it's done. You have somebody exercise in the heat, you get them really thirsty, you get them really dehydrated, and then you put them on a bike, you tell them go as hard as they possibly can, right? Maybe you give them some water to drink during this time and you say, Hey, look, and the people we didn't give a drink to, They did terribly. And the ones that we handed the water bottle to and they replaced all of their dehydration, they did great. Right. But this is research. And usually what we try to do is blind people to what's going on. And when you hand somebody a nice, cool water bottle, they're going to do better. And it's, as you said, it's not blinded. Yep
1: the group that's being rehydrated versus the group that's not, they know it. The the poor people
0: not getting rehydrated are sitting there like, what about me?
1: (laughs) So whenever I read things like this, I always think there's this, this movie that I enjoyed Canadian movie Mm. called brain candy from the the nineties, where they come up with this drug that just makes everybody feel really good. It's kind of a satire about the, Mm. the drugs, but they're doing a controlled experiment of it. And you have this group of people that are still miserable and their faces are covered in zits and they're yelling at the researchers, "A minute, you're giving us the sugar pills. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was an episode that Dr. Eugendrup could have been a part of. Love it. Uh, you know, so this study, what did they do if they didn't give someone a water bottle? They gave them an IV. And this is pretty ingenious, I think, because they gave everyone an IV, they hid the IV bag from the subjects so they couldn't see it. Well, they went
1: down to the detail of when you get a saline solution, you feel coolness right where the needle site is. So they were literally putting cold towels on the site Yep. so you
0: wouldn't know. And the other thing they did was they changed the rate of infusion so that people didn't know how quickly they were getting fluids so they created three different conditions with this the first condition everybody went through a warm exercise dehydration trial that dehydrated right. them three percent exactly and then out of that three conditions occurred they either replaced everything so they were back to a hydrated a normal a zero percent dehydrated or they replaced one percent or they replaced nothing right? But people didn't know that they got nothing. They very well could have gotten the 2% or they could have been back to totally normal again. And that was super unique about this. Another thing that was unique about this study is they point out when you blow more air on someone, lo and behold, they don't feel as hot and they don't feel as though they're working that hard. And in our day and age of everybody riding the indoor trainer, especially in the winter time, you know exactly what this feels like yeah try doing your intervals on the trainer with no fan i've tried it once yeah that's heat training maybe that's good for you yeah maybe i will say prior to this when i was at pearl you know trevor i used to go visit you in toronto every once in a while and uh, the reason that i was up there was working in an environmental wind tunnel in canada to test clothing on cycling subjects and the reason i flew to canada for this was it was an environmental wind tunnel. Everybody getting tested was getting blasted by an appropriate amount of air, just like they were riding their bike outside. And when I'm testing clothing, you better believe that that's important, not just having a fan blowing on somebody's head, really not doing anything to cool them off. Yep. By
1: the way, what I loved about the wind tunnel you were in was it was designed for cars. Yep. So this wasn't the little wind tunnel where you're doing one subject at a time. You had the giant room where you could put 10 athletes
0: in there and test them all at the same time. Yeah. The room was big enough to hold eight coach buses to put the size in perspective. And I measured the wind flow everywhere. I could put 10 athletes and each would have laminar airflow, meaning not buffeted by other people hitting them. I could also control, the humidity, the temperature, the radiant heating, which is one thing they didn't do in this study, that it's like if they're going to the thing of increasing the airflow, they should probably shine some sun on these people. So I will knock the study for that aspect, but these environmental conditions, getting them right, if you want to compare yeah. this to outside free living, you, you got to get them right. Yep. And so getting to the results of the study, I love seeing this because I, I agree
1: with this. And look, I'm not... Saying there's no such a thing as dehydration. I think you get somebody down to six, eight percent loss of body weight. Yeah, you're gonna see a decrement in performance. It's it's more the this rule of two percent mm-hmm. that you you never want to drop below. So they had the two percent, they had the three percent, they had the you know, getting you back to normal hydration level and basically showed no difference in perceived effort, no difference in performance. No difference in heart rate the only thing that they saw a slight difference in was core temperature and it was only in the the group that was dehydrated to three percent and you only saw them start to diverge after 17 kilometers of this 25 kilometer time
0: trial wow go figure yep no change in presumably sweat rate because skin temperature was the same no change in thermal sensation people didn't necessarily feel hotter But I did find it interesting and reassuring that they did see a change in core temperature. So we are getting some precision of data here. It's not like they uh, had an agenda, so to say, and they're just like, dehydration doesn't matter. We work for the Drink Sand Corporation. But it was in line with what we would expect. Typically, it's reported that a 1% change in hydration status causes a one-tenth of a change in core temperature in degrees Celsius. So a 3% dehydration was about 3 tenths of a degree Celsius hotter core temperature than in the normal. But I will say the 2%, if you look at the data, the 2% was right there with the 3%. And this is my issue with statistical significance and practical significance, because I would say they were practically the same, but statistically there was no difference at 2%, but I think that there was.
1: Yep. No, I agree with you. So what I loved is, again, you know, this is something you see in, in Dr. Larson's studies is then he'll, he'll go into, let's try to explain what's going on. Let's talk about the physiology. And I loved his, his theory on this, which is the oral sensing. Yep. So he cited some really interesting studies where they were taking people that were getting a little glycogen depleted and had them wash their mouth with a carbohydrate drink, mm-hmm. but not swallow it. So they'd rinse their mouth and then spit it out. And that would actually improve performance. Just the sensing of carbohydrates yes. allowed athletes to go
0: harder when they were doing a, a time trial to fatigue. And for what it's worth, practically, let's say you're at the end of a long race, you're feeling like you're bonking, but you can't possibly stomach any more food because you're just nauseous go ahead and rinse that sports drink and spit it out. It's probably going to help you. But when we talk about hydration, Trevor, it wasn't the same, right?
1: So what he gets at here, I think you're getting at as well is, so he was trying to explain those other studies that saw a difference. And his point is it's not dehydration. It's not that they're getting dehydrated and that's hurting performance. More of what you're seeing is the group that were drinking, that drinking has a, a stimulus
0: that allowed them to go harder frankly they weren't thirsty and what's interesting in this study is dr larson's subjects weren't thirsty either and that's potentially or what i should say is this they were no more thirsty depending on the group they were in because if you do look they were more thirsty after the test yeah all of them than they were before the test but because in the, the saline, that normalized the osmolality of their blood, which decreases one of the drives for thirst. Another study, you know, I'm glad that you brought up the mouth rinsing one. Another study that was really interesting that he references is uh, they had subjects drink water. They had subjects get water injected into their stomach through a nasogastric tube. And they had subjects drink water and have the water sucked out of their stomach by the yeah, nasal this study sounded horrible. Can you <laughs> imagine? How oh much my should God. you have to be paid to be a volunteer in this study? I have to wonder if this is a military study because the military has an unlimited supply of very willing volunteers. Fair. In that study, if the subject drank the water, they didn't get thirsty. If it was injected into their stomach by their nose, they did get thirsty. But what was super interesting is if they drank it and then it got sucked out, they didn't get thirsty. So it had nothing to do, their thirst had nothing to do with the hydration or the water and everything to do with the act of drinking. Well, this, is, this gets at something that I've brought up before that's really important
1: to remember. You know, they keep bringing up 2% body weight loss. So you, you, you lose that weight in water you can step on a scale and see that your body has no ability to know how much water it has lost. Mm -hmm. The way your body actually keeps track of hydration status is that concentration of electrolytes in the fluid. So theoretically, if you're losing a lot of fluid because you tend to lose more fluid than electrolytes, your, your blood is going to become more concentrated and then your body goes, I need more fluid. Let's drink. Yep that's really the only way your body knows if you lose 8 pounds in water but you maintain the the osmotic balance in your blood so you're losing proportionally equivalent electrolytes
0: theoretically you wouldn't be that thirsty cuz you just wouldn't know and i think that's especially important to point out because of something else they mention in here there was no change in heart rate So that means presumably there was no change in stroke volume, right? Because the cardiac output required is the same because they're all going the same workload, right? And if the heart rate is the same, then the cardiac output must be the same and the stroke volume must be the same. They all have to be the same. So if there's no change in stroke volume, there was probably no change in the volume in their vascular system. And he points out that the body does everything it can to preserve the fluid in the vascular space it'll take out of the extravascular space. It'll take it out of your skin, out of your muscles, everything it can do before you take it out of the vascular space. So you might see a decrease in that blood volume when you're more dehydrated, but at 3%, probably hasn't changed yet.
1: So what you see is what they, they call cellular dehydration, where actually your cells will shrink a little bit because the fluid's being pulled out of your cells into your blood to maintain that balance. And this is, this is a whole nother conversation because this gets really complicated, but this is why the, the science of hydration is actually really complicated and why just slamming a bunch of electrolyte with some water or with a, a sugary drink might not always be the best solution because it's what state is your body in? Is, have you finally lost blood volume or has it just been the cells that have shrunk? Because if the, the blood is staying in balance... And then you, you drink a highly concentrated fluid, even though you, you have cellular dehydration, the cells have lost fluid. If you have a more concentrated fluid in your gut, because somebody convinced you this huge electrolyte drink is great for you, then water always goes to decrease the, the concentration. Even though you're dehydrated and your blood volume is okay right now, you're actually going to pull fluid out of your blood into your gut to reduce the concentration of the fluid there. And then you're gonna get
0: bloated and you've actually made yourself more dehydrated. Yep. Coming out of this study, I'm a little perplexed on the recommendations because in a 25 kilometer time trial, it probably doesn't matter. right? And Dr. Larson, or I should say this group, I shouldn't just refer to Dr. Larson here, but this group says or suggests that drinking to thirst is probably what you need because thirst itself seems like the limiter, which if you're familiar with Dr. Noakes, You can go read about Drinking to Thirst, you know, based on Dr. Noakes' work. But I will say, I am someone who enjoys very long, very arduous adventures. And I am someone who's really nerdy to the point that I have made a spreadsheet that calculates blood osmolality based on hours, fluid consumption, the concentration of sodium within that fluid, And Trevor, as you know, I like to color code things. So it's green when it's in a good place. It changes to red when it's outside the recommendation. I knew there
1: was a reason I like having you on the
0: show. I'll, I'll maybe share that sheet at one point, but I don't know that the recommendation dehydration doesn't matter is the right recommendation to give, especially in people in my place because of this. I think on short duration stuff, you can certainly drink to thirst and be totally fine. If I'm legitimately in the middle of the desert, three hours in and three hours from home, and I'm thirsty, I'm probably not able to catch back up and quench my thirst, so to say, at that point. So I do, even though I know this, even though I know that dehydration doesn't necessarily matter, at least at 3%, I'm still very diligent about calculating what I'm taking in to make sure that I don't end up at six or 8%. Because when you sweat like a pig, like I do, You get there real fast, let me tell you.
1: And I don't think Dr. Larson would disagree with that. I think the point that he's making, which I agree with, is we have become obsessed with dehydration. right? And we think it takes very little for us to get dehydrated and lose performance. And you see people obsessing rehydrating. And the, the worst consequence of this has been in amateurs, like recreational athletes who are doing something like a marathon and so worried about dehydration that they over consume they drink too much fluid and that leads to something called hyponatremia that can kill people and you had cases of people dying in marathons because they were overhydrating so I, I think the the point that I agree with here is we're a little tougher than we think we can handle dehydration a little better than we think you know take care of yourself be smart about it don't dramatically dehydrate I've been there it's a bad place yeah but don't think that you know we're this fragile.
0: Yeah. We talk a lot about this back in episode 221 with Dr. Kenefik. It was called Addressing Sweat and Electrolyte Loss. Great episode that goes really deep on that side of it. Hey listeners, this is Ryan Kohler, coach, physiologist, and owner of Rocky Mountain Devo. Whether you're a competitive athlete or a fitness-focused individual, Rocky Mountain Devo has a place for you. We provide coaching, nutrition, lactate and metabolic testing and training plan guidance so that you can get to where you want to be check us out today at rockymountaindevo.com well rob we're at about an hour i think i got an a- minus. what do you think Oh, I was going to grade you, wasn't I? Yeah. Well, I graded myself because that's how you do it in this day and age—you score yourself, Trevor. Am I grading you on the final episode no, no, no. or all, you, the, you're, all, you're, all the stuff that you cut out? I already gave. My, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you went off, Mike, more than I did. Uh, I already gave myself an A minus. You got to grade yourself, man. Are you better than me, or are you worse than me? I'll just say I'm better looking. A minus for you too. <laughs> gonna recover from that one are we <laughs> nope we're done that's it mic drop that was another episode of fast talk subscribe to fast talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. be sure to leave us a rating and a review the thoughts and opinions expressed on fast talk are those of the individual as always we love your feedback tweet at us at at fast talk labs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com as always, you can learn from our experts at fasttalklabs.com or help keep us independent by supporting us on Patreon. For Trevor Connor and Rob Pickles, I'm Rob Pickles. For Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.